Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter Six. Three days later, with the time delay on direct communications and other media down to only a few minutes, Carmi decided to hold a general meeting. Ship's crew crowded onto the bridge, and Ira closed the emergency door behind us for privacy. Okay, things are bad down there, she started off. I've seen bombings, guerrilla attacks, and random violence on all the nets except the official one. They've had some heavy censorship from the state, but since this government doesn't pay for the storage space of its private networks on outbound ships, only the media they want people to see have gotten out so far. I don't know what kind of job this Billings guy is doing, but he's sure pissed off a lot of people. Seems like a war is brewing, or maybe a takeover, if the military turns against him. Either way, in case there was any doubt, there will be no shore leave here. That got a needed laugh. Folks raised his hand, and Carmi nodded. I've gotten an excessive number of requests for our AIN authorizations, travel assurances, past and future itineraries, and insurance details. Additionally, Griselda has had to submit formal docking requests with no less than seven branches of the government, only one of which represents the Barlow High Dock itself. Each of these required fees, tariffs, and processing remittances to be deposited in advance, and I have two more such pending. These bribes are starting to get excessive. Should I be telling them to sod off? Uh, should I refuse these requests? Not bluntly, Dell, but yes. Maybe tell them there's a delay with our financial processing, but that we'll get to them as soon as we can. We're covered for a reasonable amount of expenses under the charter, but I don't want to push it. I hate feeding every parasite in the system anyway. Candy raised her hand demurely. Um, I've been told by the dockmaster's chief mercantile officer that there's been a hold on all goods-based transactions until further notice, but that they intend to inspect the load anyway. Dell tells me that's illegal. I'm aware of it. Yes, they're wrong about that, but we'll be on their dock for at least a week and a half. So the real question is, how much trouble do we want while we're here? As of approximately one month ago, there are no longer any trade union reps in system, so filing a complaint will get us nowhere. Now that was a shock. My early research, while we were still outbound from Oasis, had shown that there was a building in downtown Finery where many of the major trade unions for commercial space operations had offices. I'd tried contacting my own union since we jumped in and had left a message. Smaller offices are sometimes just one-person operations, so I hadn't thought much about the lack of response just yet. What's to stop them from impounding it all? If they're demanding bribes, they might just demand our load, too. 
Things don't seem to be that bad yet, Candy, but Dell and I will be meeting with the Dockmaster's staff as soon as we arrive in order to work out the details. I don't want strangers on board unless they're paying for the privilege. That was a sentiment we all certainly shared. Stationers and ground pounders often spelled trouble for spacers, what with their local problems and petty rules and ordinances. If it wasn't health codes and viral scares, it was protectionist trade practices, draconian anti-smuggling laws, and bizarre social purity policies. And these things could change at the drop of a hat. Add in political squabbles like Barlow's and the situation became completely unpredictable. Honestly, if there was any place else to go, I doubt ships would bother with gravity wells or stations at all. God forbid we should have combat trouble with the locals, Carmi continued with a nod towards me. But if we did guns, what could we expect? And suddenly everyone was looking at gunnery to see. It felt scary and great. Well, um, let's see. Barlow's planetary defense capabilities were not on the general record, which is kind of shady. But my local union office, now defunct, I guess, still has its own database active, including the rep's field notes. In-atmosphere military air support is moderate, with at least one squadron of armored air cars tricked out as fighters and a few others designed for personnel transport. I doubt they have anything in that group that can threaten us. This was received all around with some relief, I could tell, but I wasn't done. Now for space, Barlow has a small fleet of unarmed maintenance pods and shuttles, mostly older things. They do, however, have two other vessels of note. One is a civilian-class gunboat of the Marcan type, massing just a little less than Griselda does with an empty hold. Minimum crew of three. No energy weapons, but it has four missile cylinders and a bunch of small flak guns. The Marcan design has a notoriously small fuel load, so I'm guessing that, as a general policy, they'll stay close to the high dock for quick top-offs. If that's true, then they'll be reluctant to pursue should we need to make a break for it. Is it fast? Carmi asked. Not like us, no. Few are, in fact. That made people happy, and I was happy to say it. But the next part was unclear, and it bothered me. The other vessel is something of an unknown, a military surplus thing from over the border. It's called a Rock Breaker System Transport and Defense Boat. That's an auto-translation of the Seishan. Seems to be some kind of armored personnel carrier, probably modified. What this name in Seishan? Ben Roggenston asked with a confused frown. I called it up on my wrist comp and retinals, fumbled over the pronunciation a few times, then brought it up on hollow and showed it to him. Ah, Hiliapa, Land Smasher, is troop transport, very common. Can enter atmosphere and eject sky soldiers at high elevation, but can land on surface too. Is also can find variation of same design uh, to drop guided bombs and missiles. That made me think. A troop transport or bomber would go a long way toward fighting insurgents, I calculated aloud. And this regime has lots of enemies on the ground. Let's assume that one's for internal security. This only leaves the Marcan as a reasonable threat. Now, as I said, we're faster and more maneuverable than that thing. The quality of our attacks and defenses, considering the equipment alone, is also superior. Based on standard specs for Pelican-class traders, which is all they can possibly have on record, they're likely to believe the exact opposite. Now that's a bad thing if we want them to think twice about starting any crap with us. 
but a very, very good thing if they actually do. Keep in mind, though, they're able to put a whole lot more missiles on trajectory than we are. Gunnery stands ready, but, uh, let's avoid trouble if we can. Here, here, Carmi said. Have there been disturbances on the station itself? Folks asked her. Not that we've heard so far, Dell, she replied. I did a few searches on the data nets for high dock issues, but there simply isn't much going on. Traffic data from orbital control shows that a big agrochem refinery ship left the system just a few hours before we jumped in. I guess that will be the last tanker load Barlow will be sending out for a while. I'm disappointed about this trade ban. Maybe we can work something out regardless. Did they have a problem with actually letting us dock? Rena asked. Carmi paused to frame her words. Not really. At first it looked like we were getting the cold shoulder. After I transmitted the details of our charter, though, including the passenger list, we were given a flight path, approach vector, and a berth number. I'd say Mr. Small's company made arrangements somehow. After this, Elareta took the lead, detailing life support resupply procedures as handed down by the dockmaster's office and exactly what each item would cost. And the prices were obscene. He made a point of reminding us over our sharp commentary about this that the charter did include expenses, so at least it wasn't cutting into the ship's dwindling coffers. Also, he re-emphasized that we were to remain aboard, elaborating that the high dock had no private commercial outlets of any kind. That was a subtle reference to Ben Ham, I think, but it was appropriate nonetheless. Ben Roggenston then spoke up on the prospect of refueling here. The price seemed so outrageous that owner consensus was to make do with the current fuel load, expenses covered or no. He said that Griselda would be at approximately 60% capacity by the time we arrived at dock. That would allow for a slightly truncated return trip via the Greenbelt-Waterberg-Tyree run in keeping with the charter. Greenbelt prices were some of the best in the area just then, so it was probably prudent to wait anyway. He didn't like flying with short tanks, but that's how it was going to be. There weren't any more questions, so the captain dismissed us at that point. I caught up with the chief and assistant engineers as they walked and said, I should have guessed that the unions would be closed here, but I just didn't think of it. I have work to do, you mind, Sherry replied with clipped coldness. She quickened her pace, leaving me with Ben Roggenston, a surprised expression without doubt on my face. His showed embarrassment, and he quickly glanced back at the bridge, where Anya was standing in the open hatchway watching us with her same enigmatic detachment. I gave her a shrug, but she didn't respond. Is small ship, Ben Roggenston said quietly, then proceeded on without me. I didn't know what to do with myself then, so I went and sat in my closet. Another simulation was in the works, and I debugged what there was of it so far while I brooded. Anya and I were almost an every-night thing, but it didn't seem like a shipboard romance, not really. We didn't talk much in words, partly because of the language barrier, but mostly out of inclination. My experience, blushworthy though it is to admit, was not vast, and I'd simply been enjoying the hidden nature of this strange, quiet, erotic friendship. But I realized then that Sherry and I had been flirty from the start, and that maybe she'd read something into it, and that maybe I should have too. I had an impulse then, which I thankfully resisted, to go speak to her about loneliness, about space travel, 
about a tubby introvert who'd been unprepared for his recent prospects. Ah, it was selfish talk, even in my head, and it segued, after a time, into a mental slideshow of moments and faces, friends and infatuations from the different eras of my life. Unquestionably, things had been easier when I was merely a funny loser with a missile fetish, but they hadn't been better. Analysts of all kinds, from pros to schmoes, had written about the phallic and psycho-carnal symbology of my profession. As far as I was concerned, they were all missing the point. I was terrified of loss, so I did everything in my personal and professional life to keep from experiencing it. Shallow roots meant no pain when it came time to uproot them. And anyway, drifting was a balm all its own. I shot down ships to stay alive, understand? And I shot down love to do the same. About 20 diameters out, the gunboat hooked up with our trajectory and announced that, coincidentally, it had just received a recall order, so it would be escorting us into the high dock. They tried to sound innocuous, though they were looking us over carefully, their mixed sensor wash splashing over the ship like waves on a foreign shore. I found the time to watch them right back for a little while, not powered up for a fight or anything, just looking. Griselda's nav radar did a veritable ping dance all over them while I piped the raw data we got back through some classic algorithms, putting together a nice external schematic. A squat, roundish thing, broadcasting its name as Superior, it was vaguely reminiscent of a gauntleted fist. With some ancient, generic-looking targeting hardware spaced around it at regular intervals, it was pretty much right in keeping with the standard registry for the Markan class. Based on the information they were being so generous in providing, just as we were doing for them, assuming they thought of using it, they were burdened with some pretty old equipment. Superior must have crafted poor targeting solutions beyond an average of, say, 500 kilometers, which meant it was nearsighted. Absently, I assigned strike points along Superior's portside hull line, which was facing us, and then mirrored them for starboard. From this distance, I could track their hypothetical attacks from the moment of launch and counter within seconds. I programmed in a critical auto-firing routine and kept it fed with a constant update of telemetry. If I wasn't actually sitting in gunnery, if or when the shoe dropped, I could still key full defensive mode remotely through my wrist comp. Now, if we were stuck with only a passive defense approach, I figured the Melkotch guns would be the best choice initially, using Benham's favorite, and only, technique of single-beam skeet shooting. Then, I'd bring up a plasma haze around the ship to hopefully kill anything of theirs that slipped through. If I was given the go-ahead for active techniques as well, I'd do it the same, but start off by burning out a couple of their point defense systems with the energy weapons, then follow on with a missile salvo. At the current range, start to finish, it would be over in less than 30 seconds, provided I had time to deploy the guns first. No matter the approach, Griselda had a high probability of stopping every piece of ordnance Superior could fire, but only if I was ready for them. A sucker punch would be our undoing, so I didn't figure to give them the chance. And I only hoped no one else gave them a reason. Rapid use of the Melkotch guns was a bit of a downer. 
From initialization to full deployment, we were looking at over 50 seconds. That was a mechanical limitation I could do nothing about. They'd be no good in a close and sudden skirmish, so I had them at the very top of each of my startup routines. If it looked like trouble, both of the squat, lantern-shaped guns, one dorsal and one ventral, would creak out to their full extension mount lengths of 30 meters. Simultaneously, I would be setting up targeting options, battle theater parameters, and black and white listed sensor contacts. And all the while, everyone aboard, including myself, would be praying that Carmi could talk us out of it. As for directing the Melkotches at the gunboat itself, Superior's flak guns were about the only viable targets. The neutral particles of the accelerators would have merely a slight chance of hurting a Marcan quickly enough to stop it from emptying its full missile load, and that was with stock armor from the manufacturer. Any upgrades and the chance dropped to zero. There was no reason to automatically assume Superior was tougher than the average Marcan, but there was also no way to be certain just yet, because it wasn't close enough for opticals. Could we hurt it? Sure, and badly. Could we hurt it fast enough to keep it from hurting us? Well, that was the big question. If it came down to a real fight, we'd be using missiles too. The more distance our ordnance had to travel under constant acceleration, the faster it would be going and getting hit by fast objects is never good for your health. Counterintuitively, therefore, the further you traveled from your enemies, the more dangerous you became. Beyond its presumed 500-kilometer targeting range, the gunboat's commander would be unlikely to press an attack. If Griselda still had any ordnance left, though, we could keep launching from well beyond that, hammering them mercilessly. There'd be no reason to at that point, beyond spite, but mercy comes with its own baggage, so I was okay with whatever had to happen. The gunboat got priority, of course, so our inbound vector, assigned to us by the station, required Griselda to shift to a parking orbit for two or three revolutions. That made our final approach to the Barlow Interstellar Spaceport problematic. Their so-called standard rerouting protocol was awkward at best, requiring an unorthodox and mass-intensive reaction burn to get from that idiotic substitute orbit over to the needed approach. Ultimately, it consisted of two aborts and a final scary damn-the-torpedoes high-speed link-up. Carmi was cursing eloquently about the whole thing over the open channel when the high dox magnetic grips finally took hold at the bay we were assigned to. But traffic control actually congratulated Ailareda as pilot on his smooth work. Exterior cameras showed a warped and wrinkled surface around the dock face that bespoke of much worse approaches in the past. So, by Barlow standards, I guess it was a good one. Artificial gravity technology predated FTL. In fact, Starjump Tech was built upon AG since control of gravity was required for the necessary manipulation of space-time. But vessels of a certain size, and this included stations, still relied upon the tried-and-true method of spinning for the simulation of gravity. First off, after the initial energy cost associated with bringing such a structure up to the required rotational speed, maintaining it was a breeze. With just the occasional firing of the odd stabilizing thruster here and there, you could have a nice, reliable, long-term pretense of weight. Secondly, this method was inherently safer. On a ship with even a small crew performing normal operations, the sudden, unexpected loss of artificial gravity was a serious situation. 
People and their equipment could float off into all sorts of bizarre and dangerous places, bouncing off or getting lodged within power couplings, vents, and machines of all kinds. That was bad, but if gravity then came back on as suddenly as it had disappeared, casualties were a certainty. Now compound this same crisis by thousands of souls, or even millions in some of the larger stations, people who were just going about their daily lives without a single thought to the deck under their feet, and you were looking at a major disaster. It only had to happen once back in the early days of humanity's interstellar expansion in order to set a safety precedent that had been carried on ever since. Actually, it should have only happened once. As usual, it took several real-world examples of the worst-case scenario for designers and engineers heavily invested in a paradigm to change their way of thinking. An example of intelligence outstripping wisdom, perhaps, but the lesson, once finally learned, had been enforced with equal doggedness. That being said, it was not uncommon to have sections of a station under at least partial AG, especially with problematic areas like the zero-gravity core of cylindrical and ring-shaped colonies, or with the ever-reducing weight you'd feel on multi-story buildings in the residential and business neighborhoods. This aspect of station design was quite variable. Oasis, for example, relied solely on centrifugal force and had no AG at all in any areas. The Barlow High Dock, however, following a different popular design concept, used it on many floors, including the core. There was little rhyme or reason for this kind of variety beyond owner preferences or power considerations, and it could be a real hassle if you traveled a lot. Personally, I liked having the same grav everywhere I walked, so Barlow got points for that much anyway. We had Alan Small and his people ready to go as soon as the ship was stabilized. Their baggage was dug out from cargo, duly ticketed and checked off by Candy, and Carmi met them at the personnel exit, doing a last-minute review about contact protocols. She had the number for each person's comm on Small's team. She methodically tested them all through the local nets, which Griselda had linked directly into as soon as we'd gotten close enough, and everything seemed to work okay. Rena and I helped them with their stuff, using a cart she'd gotten from cargo. Some of the baggage consisted of matching hard cases of various sizes, marked fragile, yet they were all heavy enough under the high dock's 1.1G to need both of us to handle. The high dock itself was fairly clean, if stunted and a bit shabby in aspect, basically just a fat wheel in high orbit painted appealing industrial gray inside and a utilitarian white without. There were bold signs and instructions everywhere, in both English and low-speak, mostly covering safety or regulatory concerns. People in dark green overalls, visually differing in rank or duty by fabric pipings that ran down the sleeves, moved here and there in no hurry whatsoever. There were also armed guards at regular intervals, in thin body armor and shiny black helmets, and they all sported short crowd guns, which I assumed had non-penetrative ammunition. Standing about attentively, the closest ones watched us with interest for a short while, and then not at all. A group of four or five people, apparently stationed bigwigs, met Small as he came out of the airlock, and they chatted quietly. There was civility in their expressions, but no warmth. The rest of the news crew gathered up nearby. Wish us luck, Hap Larendell said to me as he passed by to join the others. Luck, I offered to his wiry retreating back.
In a minute or so, the entire assemblage had stepped onto a low crawler, which had seen better days, and rolled off through a large open hatchway out of sight. A nasal beep to unseen pedestrians from the vehicle's proximity sensor echoed back like a rude little laugh, and then even that was gone. The station had a dedicated safety inspection team on staff, dressed in green like the others, but with long black and yellow stripes on their sleeves. They arrived about then to make sure the ship was clear of any leaks or radiation hotspots or whatever else. Standard stuff, but Griselda's engineers made a point of watching these people, lest something be found that wasn't there to begin with. Ben Roggenston with a studied frown, Sherry with an expression I couldn't read. In fact, looking from one person to another, whether Griselda personnel or total stranger, I suddenly found myself unable to piece out any expressions on anyone anywhere. I caught sight of my own face, too, bloated and distorted in a shiny round coupling nearby, but it was just as remote and just as puzzling. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.